0: Aubrey mentioned that we have uh, two children. Uh, our son Brett lives in Washington State, and our daughter Kim lives down south in the in the deep South. And uh, Joe and I were especially blessed this week because Kim and our grandson Cole were visiting with us. And one of my favorite things to do with Cole is a uh, is a game that I just call "I'm Gonna Get You," you know. <laughs> and uh, Cole would uh, he'd be in the hallway or on the, somewhere in the house, and I would just get down real low and I'd say, Cole. I'm going to get you. And Cole would look around like he couldn't figure out what to do. And then he would turn and run with this funny little duck walk, you know, and I'd try and get away from me. And, of course, I would run. I'd let him go for a ways. I'd run, pick him up, pick him up in the air, and then blow on his tummy, you know. And the giggle that he would give was the best. And it was even better when he would go, Bubba Bubba, which is what he calls me. That was the best of all. Uh, but one thing I noticed as we were with Cole this week is that he has this relentless drive to, uh, to walk. He's kind of at that stage where he's, he's moving into that, you know, and he sees people walking and he's just, is just working hard at it all the time. And so his life really is kind of focused on just two things. I'm going to walk and climb stairs and I'm going to eat. And that's pretty much what life is for him. It's a very central uh, laser-like focus that he has. And I kind of, I kind of um, admire that and I envy that. To have such a singular focus on life gives us a real sense of clarity And it simplifies our priorities and it makes us uh, able to make decisions uh, more easily. Well, Jesus had that kind of focus. And the Sermon on the Mount that we've been studying for several weeks, one way of thinking about it is really Jesus' attempt to help us uh, impart that focus to us, that singular focus that he had. He stated it really succinctly in Matthew chapter 22 when someone asked him, "What is the most important command?" And Jesus answered that was, "You need to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind." And he says, "This is the first and greatest commandment, but then there's a second that's like it. Love your neighbor as yourself." All the law and the prophets hang on these two. All 613 commands in the Torah boil down to these two things. So he takes this big complex and makes it a very simple idea that serves as the focal point of his life, the driving force in his life. And so he wants that to be the lens through which we look at life and understand life, to give some clarity and some focus to our own day-to-day activities and priorities and decisions. And so the Sermon on the Mount is kind of like a concrete picture that Jesus paints of what it would look like to have a kingdom whose citizens actually live with that singular focus. It's a beautiful picture, and we've seen this over and over through the through the weeks we've been studying this. Jesus came to launch God's kingdom rule on earth, and he came to call out and to empower a group of people who would begin their own little duck walk, like coal, to walk this way. But, also, if you've been here, and if you spend any time in the Sermon on the Mount, you have to admit that the life and the picture Jesus paints is vastly different than life as we know it. The experiences that we have in life. And so, it kind of leaves us begging, you know, how could we possibly hope to live this way? And there's nowhere that this gap is more obvious than in the nature of human relationships, which permeate the sermon. And particularly today in the ways in which we humans seem to have so much difficulty getting along with each other. It's, it's pervasive. Uh, we can just look at the newspaper and we see conflict between religious groups and ethnic groups. We see genocide. We see war on scales unprecedented. And it's so permeated our life that we've taken the very creative uh, gifts that God has given to us as we've turned them to thinking of ways to kill people on scales that are unimaginable. Now we can sit with a joystick Half around, halfway around the world, and direct a drone to kill somebody across the world. This is what God, he gave us our gifts, and this is what we have turned to use them for. It says something about our fallenness. But the most painful conflicts, I think, for us, particularly in the United States, where we've not, for well over 100 years, had war on our own land. Uh, for us, I think the most painful conflicts are those that happen in those relationships that uh, are... Uh, permeate our lives day in and day out, the relationships that are nearest to us. So our friends, co-workers, our bosses, our spouses, and our families sometimes are riddled with conflict of various kinds. And these kinds of conflicts leave scars that in many ways are deeper wounds and much longer healing, much longer lasting than a bullet wound or a broken bone. We see, see, for example, husbands and wives that can fall into cycles of mutual injury to one another, by words or otherwise, and they seem unable to escape that. And yet, here it is. Jesus enters right into this, this singular focus of life that he calls us to, this revolutionary life. Now, when I look at Cole, I just take such delight in walking him do that duck walk. It is awesome. In fact, I would rather watch Cole do his duck walk down the hallway than watch an Olympic sprinter any day of the week. And the reason for this is because I understand his babiness. You know, he's just a baby. And so I look at him as a baby and I say, that's just just so awesome, look at you as a baby. And I can see ahead and someday he's going to walk like a man. Well, God, he takes delight in our duck walk, in our spiritual duck walk as we try and walk in the life of the kingdom. And the reason is because he understands our fallenness, he knows who we are, and he delights for us to be like coal. To just take the duck walk, just start, just get that relentless focus on learning to do that walk. And so, it's into this breach of human conflict and our, the gap between who we are and what Jesus calls us to do that he steps here in Matthew chapter five, verses thirty-eight through forty-eight. So, let's first on it. We're going to do three things. We're going to talk about what is he saying in this text, and then then we're going to talk about. How do we make sense of this? How do we, what does he really mean by this? Because it's really a very challenging text. And then finally, we're going to talk about how could we possibly start that duck walk, take some steps toward that. So in this passage, there's two very closely related texts. Both of them deal with human conflict in one form or another. In verses 38 through 42, he's talking about the kind of conflict in which we've been injured by another person in some form. Uh, they've taken advantage of us. They've imposed upon us. They've uh, insulted us. It could be any one of a number of things, and it's kind of an episodic. Maybe it's an isolated event. It could be something that happened uh, at, you know over different times. But it's it's just that this person just they just hurt us, you know. And then uh, the the second passage in verses forty three through forty eight, the second command, is really dealing with a chronic situation. That's where he would have something somebody that Jesus calls our enemy. That's someone who seems to have it out for us. And that they're, they've made it kind of their, their purpose in life to make our life miserable. Maybe even to destroy us, we might feel like. Now, so those are the two, two passages and the two sections. And Jesus, I think, pretty much covers the gamut of the kinds of conflicts that we might feel. Many of us might not say that we have enemies, but we certainly can see ourselves in the first, in the first one. And then when he talks about each of these, he, he approaches it the way he has much of what he said up this point in the sermon. He begins by saying, you have heard or you've heard that it was said. And there he refers to the Jewish law, the Torah, and he quotes it. And then he, he follows, as he does that, and his explanation, he, he, he kind of qualifies that quote by giving us a hint of what is the conventional wisdom in what that passage actually means in practice, how people have put it into practice. So he said, this is, you've heard what you've said, and let me tell you how you're actually practicing this. And then he goes on to say, but I tell you, and then he's saying, This is really what it means. This is really the heart of the matter. So in the first section where he talks about those who have injured us, he says, you've heard that it was said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. He's quoting from Leviticus, the passage that was read this morning, that whenever we do injury to one another or when uh, injury is received, that there's to be a repayment of of kind. Now, what the purpose of this was was to limit uh, uh, repayment. It was not to go over the top. It was to stop and give only a payment or a punishment that was commensurate with the crime. So Jesus was trying, when God gave that law, he was, he was, he was trying to help the Israelites practice a kind of justice that was a fair justice. And they gave people back what they deserved and nothing more. But the conventional wisdom had turned this around. Rather than it being something to limit and assure a just kind of uh, repayment, it became almost a command to extract revenge. That whenever someone does you wrong, you should go and take their eye out. If they injure your eye. If they, if they break your arm, you go break their arm. If they steal your cow, you go steal their cow. Permission to do, to do revenge, to take revenge. Now, in the love your neighbor passage... The second part, verses 33 to 48, Jesus says, uh, you know, he quotes, uh, and he says that you should, well, let me lay back up. He talk, first he talks about, and then he says, here's what I tell you on this passage, after you, the taking revenge. He said, instead of responding in kind, what I want you to do is to diffuse, deflect, and surprise with grace. So this is the heart of the matter. It's not a command to take revenge. It's a command to diffuse, deflect, and surprise the punisher, the the, the offense, with grace. Now, in the second passage, Jesus uh, quotes where it says that uh, "love your neighbor as you love yourself." Or, or, excuse me, he says, "love love your neighbors." But then he goes on to say he quotes what the conventional wisdom is. He says, "He says, but hate your enemies." So. The command was to love your neighbor. But then the interpretation of the command was this. Oh, love my neighbor. Okay, good. I just need to figure out who my neighbors are. I'll draw a box around them. And then everybody inside that box I will love. And anybody outside the box I will hate. Or I'll exclude. Or I'll isolate. Or I'll criticize. And I can kind of move people in and outside the box. You know, oh, you're not my neighbor. I'm going to treat you this way today. And Jesus says, no, no. That's not what it's all about. He He goes on to say that, no, the heart of the matter is this. That you are, instead of reinforcing enmity, you are to by isolating, ignoring, and hating. Instead of doing that, what you're supposed to do is convert your, neighbor, your enemy into a neighbor. So think about what Jesus is saying here. This is kind of revolutionary. We have to check ourselves when we hear what he says. Because our defenses go up and we quickly work to qualify and dilute the force of what he is saying. And we say to ourselves, there's no way. No way could you actually practice this. Maybe if I was in a culture where people kind of accepted this and wanted to live this way, I could do that. But not in this world. Maybe in heaven, but not here. It's really hard for us to make sense of what Jesus is saying here in light of all the experience that, he, that we have. And his words seem impractical to us. They seem like they're idealistic. Maybe even just a little bit naive. But don't forget his singular focus. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. That's the constitution of his kingdom. So this is not Jesus' pipe dream. This is Jesus' mission. His mission is to create a society that lives this way. That actually does so in the middle of a broken world that doesn't recognize that and doesn't live that way. In fact, if you take love, your enemy, out of Christianity... You've unchristianized the Christian faith. You've turned Jesus, at best, into a great teacher who says inspiring things that no one really pays attention to or takes seriously. Or at worst, you've turned him into a deluded but sweet-spirited nut. So, this is what Jesus is calling us to. But how do we make sense of all this? Well, Jesus offers really two explanations behind this command, this calling. One is a theological explanation... And uh, that's rooted in the character and nature of God. And the second is kind of an experience-based explanation. So we're going to touch on each of those. The theological explanation, he touches on in verses 45, 46, and again in verse 48. He says, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. So that you will exhibit the DNA that you've got as his children. That's his DNA. And then he goes on at the end, summarizing Everything he said up to this point at the very last statement at the end of chapter 5. And he says, therefore, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. So, if you think Jesus' words are naive or simplistic or wrong-headed and you've explained them away, you'd better think again. Because he's telling us this is the way God is. And you're saying God is naive and simplistic and wrong-headed. Here's what God does. Jesus gives us some clues of the way God operates in response to evil first he takes the initiative against evil here's what he does. Jesus says he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and he sends his reign on the righteous and the unrighteous. so God the, he seizes the initiative and he takes the action to do good and then secondly, God acts with mercy. he does not return in kind in fact he doesn't give what is deserved. He doesn't withhold good because he has been offended. And then thirdly, he acts without regard to our response. He's not a doormat. God's not, he's not trying to buy our affection to make him feel better about himself. And so kind of laying down said, hit me again. No, God is doing this because that's who God is. And he will do it no matter what we do. That's just his nature and he's doing it to give us a way out he's trying to get us a way out of the prison we've made for ourselves the cycle of violence that we live in in Romans chapter 5 the passage that Zoe read this morning the passage tells us that that's exactly what God did while we were his enemies he came not when we were uh, you know kind of friendly toward him no we were his enemies and he came and he reconciled us through his son through the death of his son so This is who God is, and that's why it's who we should be. And it's the way God has chosen to redeem this world. That's how he's going to overcome evil. So that's the theological piece. But then Jesus gives kind of an experience-based explanation to this passage and this command. In verses 46 and 47, he says something. It's kind of a curious statement. He says, if you love only those who love you, what reward are you going to get? And uh, aren't even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Don't even the pagans do that? Okay, so, you know, you could read this about, okay, Jesus is trying to bait us a little bit. Say, so, hey, if you, you know, if you don't do this, you won't get a reward. And if you do do it, you'll get a reward. Nah, I don't think that's really what he's getting at. It's kind of like he's saying, okay, look at the tax collectors and pagans. In fact, look at the world around you. You've been trying this for a while. And so how is that working for you? You know? Look around you. Look at the relationships around you. This is what tax collectors do. They love the people who love them. The pagans greet their brothers. You're trying that. What results have you gotten for that? And so now he's saying to us, the way of retaliation, the way of of paying back evil for evil isn't working. And it's created the world that we have today. My way is the only way. Just like the front of our worship guide says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. A thing we have to come to grips with about cancer and the, or the, about evil and, and the nature of evil is that it is like cancer. Uh, it's like cancer cells that divide and they create even more cancer. Can, uh, evil impregnates every human relationship with injury and ill intent, and then through retaliation, it gives birth to even more injury and ill intent, multiplying on and on to create the broken world and relationships that we see today. Jesus said to Peter, when they came to take Jesus in the garden, and Peter drew his sword, Peter, all who draw the sword will die by the sword. It will, it will come back and bite you and destroy you in the end. Miroslav Volf is a great theologian, alive today. He's from Yugoslavia, lives in the United States. And he wrestled with this because of injuries that were inflicted on him when he lived in Yugoslavia before the fall of the Iron Curtain. He was working on his Ph.D. in theology, that most subversive of disciplines. He was married to a, a woman who was a, theolo- a theologian, whose father was a minister, the pastor. So he was a threat to the state. And he was conscripted into the Yugoslav army. And th- once he got there, he came to realize that actually the whole purpose of this, that all the soldiers in his barracks had actually been recruited to spy on him and to trump up charges against him so that they could lock him away. And so over a period of many, many months, he was interrogated and threatened, isolated from his family, isolated from any contact outside, and told that they, and shown thick stacks of, of specific things they had against him, told that he would never see his family again. One particular man, Captain G, he calls him, was the man who was always present, and he speaks of the glee with which Captain G would look at him when he could see how frightened Wolf was with the threats that were being uh, uh, given to him. Well, as the Iron Curtain fell, and Wolf eventually moved to the United States, this Captain G just haunted his thoughts. He couldn't get away from him. Every waking moment at night, he dreamed about him. And as a theologian and as a Christian, he began to wrestle with this very passage that we're looking at today. And he, over a long period of time, began to work through this. And here's something he wrote. He had a book called The End of Memory, Remembering Rightly in a Violent World. And here's what he says. To triumph fully, evil needs two victories, not one. The first victory happens when the evil deed is perpetrated. The second victory when evil is returned. After the first victory, evil would die if the second victory did not infuse it with new life. In my own situation, I could do nothing about the first victory of evil, but could prevent the second Captain G would not mold me into his image. Instead of returning evil for evil, I would heed the Apostle Paul and try to overcome evil with good. After all, I myself had been redeemed by the God in Christ who died for the redemption of the ungodly. And so, once again, like Cole, he doesn't say that, I started walking and stumbling in the footsteps of, of the enemy loving God. So, there's a theological reason why we should do this. There's a, pra- a practical experience religion. The reason that this is, you know, this is, doing it the way we do it has gotten us to where we are. We need to do it God's way. But now we need to ask ourselves, how do we put this into practice? So I have just some brief suggestions. And there's two domains in which we need to tackle this. Uh, so we've got to do, it's kind of like a house. We've got to do some interior work and we've got to do some exterior work. So the interior work really has to do with our hearts. What are we going to do with our hearts and work on our hearts with this? And then what are we going to do in terms of practical action? So I'm going to just suggest some things here. The first thing is we need to name the offender. Now, again, you need not to have somebody in your life that you call an enemy. But think about this. Do you know someone who you feel like has made it their goal to make your life miserable? Or maybe there's someone that when you do think of them, you quickly go to the way that they have injured you. And that becomes the defining uh, characteristic of your of your thoughts. Or maybe it's someone that you just harbor resentment against them and you, can't, you haven't really quite sorted out why that's the case. Or maybe you find yourself uh, repeatedly, when you're with that person, getting into a wrestling match, a back and forth, each of you trying to get the upper hand over the other one. That sort of ego... Contest, or maybe it's somebody that you have simply chosen to shove out of your mind and avoid altogether. Think about that. We all have people like that in our lives. So that's the first thing: name the offender. The second one is name their offense. Now wait a minute. Why would you name the offense? It seems like Jesus is telling us to to forget about it. No, he's not telling us to forget about it. In fact, he says he says. Uh, do not resist the evil person. It's an acknowledgement that there is such a thing as, e- as evil in the world. So Jesus is not calling us to act as if there was no evil. There was truly an offense done. This is, this is God's way too. God calls it what it is. We need to name the offense because evil has been done and because judgment must be made on that evil. And so we need to, we need to acknowledge what has been done. But now it starts getting tough. Because the next thing that I would suggest we need to do is once we know who this person is, once we can describe what they have done, we need to entrust their judgment to God. It's not your job. It's God's job. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Romans chapter 12, verse 19. What do we mean by this—to give up and trust, or entrust their judgment to God? Well, basically, I need to give up my right to pay the, my right to pay them back. It's not my right. I need to give up my right to demand that they pay me back and pay for what they've done. I need to give up my need to convince them that I am right and they are wrong. I just need to let go of that. And I need to give up my need to make them feel bad for what they have done. That is all God's job. That's what he does. That's how he convicts people and he draws them to himself. Not your task. Let go of that. And then the last thing. You need to place your own fallen nature alongside theirs. We need to recognize that their actions come from the same kind of fallenness that runs through your core. And there, but for the grace of God, go you. Miroslav Volf had to come to grips with this. He could not find Captain G. He started to seek him out. And he did searches, Google searches, you name it. He was trying to find him. Couldn't find him. So he carried on an imaginary dialogue with Captain G to try and work this out. And at first, he resisted Captain G because Captain G just kept denying everything, kept trying to make excuses, and, and even turned it on him, Miroslav, and, and said, I know things about you, you know, that nobody else knows. That you're, you're no better than I am. And Wolf rebelled against that. But then, finally, the light came on for Wolf, and he realized, you know what? I have been... Unkind, I, I have harbored resentments against others, and I have been wrong headed because of the experiences i 've had in life has given me a distorted view of certain things and so i 've treated people as a, as a kind of a natural consequence out of that and that 's what this man did. he had grown up in a system that treated human beings not as human beings but as cogs for the state, and so it made perfect sense to him to do that. This is not to make excuse not to not to excuse it, but to understand that this man 's fallenness. Is is the reason that he does what he does just as my fallenness and this is the reason I do what I do. I think this also shows up in the relationship of, of the story of Joseph and his brothers in the Old Testament. When Joseph finally sees his brothers who sold him into slavery as a young man twenty-five years ago, and he finally sees them, his reaction is one of bitterness and anger. And he manipulates the situation to, to punish them without them even knowing what he's doing. And then he, he, he works around to finally try and get them to go back home and bring their younger brother back to him as, as one of the second in command in Egypt to bring their younger brother whom he did love and whom he saw as innocent in the whole affair. And he was going to basically kidnap his younger brother and send them back to suffer in the famine. But then the light comes on and the dam breaks. And Joseph weeps, and he tells his brother, I am your brother Joseph, who you sold into slavery. I will no longer hold this against you. I really think what happened to Joseph is he saw, I am just like you. You sold me into slavery. You took me away from my father. I was getting ready to do the same thing with your little brother so he could be with me. And when the dam broke, everything changed. So we've got to learn to do that. So that's the interior work. This interior work is to name our offender name their offense entrust their judgment to God and place our own fallen nature beside theirs and then finally the exterior work what we do with our bodies well Jesus illustrates our posture toward the offender with three rather shocking and colorful illustrations he says if someone strikes you turn the other cheek in that culture the most insulting kind of strike is with the right hand backhanded so when they do that they hit you on the right cheek bam and Jesus says, turn the other cheek. You turn, you face them, and you turn the other cheek. Then he says, if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, give him your cloak as well. Strip down to your underwear and give them the rest of your clothes. And then he says, if someone comes to you, even having offended you and wants to borrow from you, give it to them. Don't deny them. There's a story told by Scott McKnight who writes about the Sermon on the Mount about a young man named Jared who was an art uh, major in college and Jared had just landed in town on the train and a little tiny, you know, kind of about 130 pound guy, you know, a real big heavy guy he's walking across the bridge over towards his college, got a backpack and uh, here came this huge hulking guy running up to him, tattoos all over his arms a real menacing kind of a look, you know and he runs up to Jared and he says give me your money and Jared he's kind of looking up at this guy, kind of you know, taken aback, and he pulls his pack around, and he pulls out his wallet, opens it, he's only got ten bucks, and so he gives him the ten bucks, and as the guy takes it, Jared remembers he's just been reading this passage, and he, so he, he looks at the guy, and he sticks out his hand, and he says, hi, I'm Jared, and the guy kind of stops for a second, and the guy says, James, and he says, no, no, I'm Jared, and the guy says, well, I know, I'm James, and so then he reaches out his hand, and they shake hands, and then Jared looks, and he sees needle marks up and down his arm, and bruise marks. And Jared says, hey, you know, it looks like, you know, maybe you're having a rough go of things right now. He said, I've got an extra bed at my place. You know, come to my place, uh, you know, just to have a place that's quiet and, and safe. You're more than welcome to do that. And just as the guys kind of look at him, I'm like, what in the world is this? A girl comes running by, kind of bumps against Jared and runs on past. She yells back, let's go. We got to get out of here. And, and then Jared realizes she's probably an accomplice with this guy and the police are probably after him. And so Jared's kind of looking a little confused. So Uh, the other guy, so Jared reaches in his pack, pulls out his Bible, and he says, I only have one other thing, but he said, and and I know you got to go, but he said, here, take this Bible. He said, it's got my name, phone number, if you need it, and you may want to read it, you know. And at that moment, the dam breaks for this guy, and he starts to weep. And he gets in Jared's face, and he said, what would God ever want to do with me? He's going to send me to hell. And Jared says, we're all going to hell if it wasn't for Jesus. And then the guy looks at him, kind of puzzled. And then he runs on. And he gets, goes to a car. And the girl's climbing into a car. And she yells, she yells, I've, got, I've got a bag. And Jared says, I've got a Bible. <laughs> he climbs in the car. And they, they go off. Okay, so what's going on here? This is a kind of a, a colorful, uh, creative way to respond to violence. It's not... It's not prescriptive. Jesus is not trying to be prescriptive here. But he's telling us that we need to be action-oriented. We need to be a gracious, expend a gracious generosity to people. And we need to be surprising to the perpetrator. And we need to take unconditional action, not trying to buy something back from them. So Jesus, as we said earlier, he calls us to diffuse, deflect, and surprise evil. We see this right now in Lent. We see Christ. He was rejected by the world, and yet he took the initiative and he came to us. He received our punishment on the cross without returning like kind, and then he rose from the grave, and now he is destroying evil stronghold because he has initiated a kingdom of people who will live with a singular focus to love God with all their heart, soul, and mind, and to love their neighbor as himself. So God calls us to this radical, counterintuitive life and relationship toward those who have done us wrong. It's not an optional call. But if we enter this walk just like little Cole, determined to walk like a grown-up, determined to walk like the human beings that God created us to be, then we will have a little duck walk as we do that. But God will look on us and the fallenness that permeates our nature, and he will redeem us, and he will take great delight because we are making visible the good news of the kingdom.